0: remain standing for the reading of the word. Good morning. My name is Jerry Fenton. I will be reading from Acts 2, 42 through 47. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship and to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came over every soul. And the Lord added to their number, day by day, those who were being saved. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Good morning, church family. Well,
1: in the early 1930s, some of you might be familiar because of uh, a recent book and movie that there was a rowing team from the University of Washington. That was a bit of an underdog. It was an eight-man rowing team uh, that competed against the other well-known institutions and universities in the area and ultimately qualified to represent the United States at the Berlin Games in. 1936. Uh, This was recently made into first a a book called The Boys in the Boat, and then it became a movie that was that just came out. But it's a real fascinating story uh, as it tracks these young men's lives and ultimately the success they they had. But but at the heart of the story is is this idea of of the team. That the boys in the boat were so successful in, in what they did and in what they accomplished as a team because of the coordination, because of the synchronization that they experienced when they rowed as a team. That their coach preached and proclaimed that it didn't matter if you had a boat that had the, had the strongest uh, rowers in it. If they functioned as individuals when they were in the boat, ultimately they would be Working against one another and the success of the team well it, it wouldn 't come about, and so he preached and he proclaimed that the need to be to be synchronized to be as one, or as they talk about in the book, experiencing this thing called called the swing when you have sixteen arms and, and sixteen legs and sixteen backs all or eight backs because you don 't have their you know, arm anyways they 're all moving they 're all moving together and, and they get into this into this. This pocket, And it says when you find that, it's, it's just such a, it's such a beautiful thing to, to experience. But at the same time, if just one person is off, um, the team, it just simply won't succeed. They'll be fighting against one another. One of the things that we have decided to do as a church at the start of this new year is, is to pause a little bit from our study of the Gospel of Luke. And to come together as a church and to look at and to consider what is our mission as a church? What is it that God has called us to? Has God called us to something? Not just individually as believers in in Jesus Christ, but but collectively. And the reason why we're looking at that is similar to what was experienced by the boys in the boat. That that our faithfulness, our our success, if you will, as a church will will be vastly determined by whether or not we're all here here for the same reason. Whether or not we, we are all a part of the plan that God has for us. Because, because if God has a plan for his church, and, and we all have different ideas of what that is, and we're pursuing pursuing that, we're going to be out of sync. There won't be the unity. There, there won't be that, that, that beauty that God has intended for us. And so one of the things that we believe wholeheartedly as a church is that God does have a mission. He does have a purpose for us, not just as a church collective, but also as individuals. And so we're taking these next few weeks to to hone in on that and to understand that. Because not only do do we want to be all rowing together, going in the same direction, not fighting against one another, or for that matter, fighting against what God wants for us, Um, we also know that as leadership, for our own hearts and minds, how easy it is to get off of mission. Um, There's a very well-known... American university that, that has literally as its mission statement. I want to I show you this up, up on the screen. Here, here's the mission statement of this uh, American university. It said when it was first founded that our purpose for our students is to be plainly instructed and consider well that the main end of your life and studies is to know God and Jesus Christ. That was the mission of that institution. That was the mission of that university. And on every diploma, you would find these words in Latin which read for for, uh, truth for Christ and his church. That as, as you graduate from this institution, we're about truth for Christ and his church. And that university that had that as its mission, that it put that on its diploma, was none other than Harvard University. That the founding of Harvard University and Princeton and, and all of those, you know, Ivy League colleges at the beginning was, was to instruct students in understanding how, how God informed their lives and informed their education. And today we can say, and Harvard would not be even embarrassed to say that is not our mission any longer. Jesus Christ has no place in the curriculum at Harvard University. What happened? Well, when you read the history of Harvard, slowly over time, the leadership of Harvard wasn't bought in on this mission. People came in and, and, and they wanted to, to move and direct it into other things. God and Christ were not central for them. And so, so the university began to fade. I want us to say, may that never be true of us. May we be a people who are continually clear on the mission and vision that God has for us. And and so so here's what we say as a church. We say that we wholeheartedly believe that the mission and vision that God has for us, it's, it's clear, it's not something that has to be guessed at. Our mission as a church, you've already heard it mentioned a couple times in our service because we believe in it so much, is to glorify God by being and making disciples of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. This is what we believe God has called us to be as a church. This is what we're to be about. This is to be our focus. And we say this is our mission because when we look at the Word of God, what we discover is that God created and does everything to glorify Himself. The very purpose for which God created the world, the very purpose for which your life was created and my life was created, was to bring glory to him. And so just to kind of re- review, this is what we believe. Psalm 19.1 says that the heavens declare the glory of God. Isaiah 43.7 says that you and I were created for God's glory. He formed us. He made us for his glory. Psalm 23 says that the things he does for his people is for his name's sake. The very purpose behind everything that God does is to glorify himself. Even Ephesians chapter 1 in the New Testament, when it talks about your salvation and my salvation, the sending of Jesus Christ into the world to save, to redeem, to adopt us, verse 6 says it's to the praise of his glorious grace. It's to make much of him. In fact, when we talk about glorifying something, this is what we mean. Because uh, some people are like, what does it mean to, to glorify God? A- at its very core, we said last week, and if you weren't here, this is why I'm reviewing this. To glorify is to make much of someone or something by revealing their attributes, by revealing their character, by making them known. It's not just simply making their attributes known and making their character known. It's to, for the purpose of making much of them, for, for, for exalting them, for, for raising them up. So when it talks about glorifying God, we exist... To to make him known, and and to make him known, and to make much of him. And so I did something last week to kind of help us think about that. I said, there's a sculpture that's in my office. I didn't bring it because it's heavy, but you could go in my office and you could look at it. And there's a sculpture that's there, and and people will say, what's that sculpture about? It's a sculpture of Franklin Delano Roosevelt. And you're like, Dave, why do you have that in your office? And I said, because it was made by my great-grandfather, and it was sculpted by him, and it was displayed in the White House during FDR's administration. And, and so I, I have that there, and I put it on display because my parents had it in a box up in the attic. And I'm like, that doesn't need to be in a box. I want to put it out somewhere. I want people to, to know the skills and gifts of my grandfather that were not passed on to me, um, that I did not receive those things. But, but. When you look at a sculpture like that, you know, when you get up close and people do that this week, I mean, you can even see. I was like, wow, I wonder what FDR felt about the mole that my great-grandfather put on his face right there. You know, he captured everything. And so I put this on display in my office because I I want you to know a little bit about my great-grandfather. I want you to know his skills. God says, I created you and I created the world so that you would actually know what I'm like. My power, my majesty But how I relate to you shows My holiness, my, my justice My patience, my kindness my, my goodness Everything God does Is to make much of himself <laughs> And God is so serious about this I, I didn't share this last week Because I wanted to drip some of these things in Isaiah 42.8 In Isaiah 42.8 God speaking to the prophet Isaiah says I am the Lord, that's my name My glory What does it say? I give to no other. I'm the only one who's worthy of this. And uh, I said in one of the services, so let me be fair to all the services, I said, this doesn't make God a narcissist or, or egotistical. He's the only being who exists who is worthy of all praise and glory. In fact, for him not to demand our praise and glory would go against his character because it would be telling you that there's something other than him that is worthy of your praise. And so he says, I'm worthy of glory. And now, why does this matter for us? Well, it matters for us because we were created then as part of his creation. It's very clear now that you and I were created to make much of him. We were created by God with the ability and purpose to reflect his character and nature. That's why Genesis 127 says, God said, let's make man our own image. In the image of God, he created him. male and female. He created them. We were, as part of his creation, in a very unique way made by God, to reflect his character and nature. We're the only beings in all of creation that have the ability to communicate relationally, that are able to show justice and kindness and patience and mercy to put those things on display. You and I were created, if you remember this from last week, we were created to be telescopes and not microscopes. We were created to, to bring the majesty of glory of God down to, to earth to reflect it to one another. That when somebody looks at your life and somebody looks at my life, they can say, I know that, that God exists. I, I know what God is like because of how we relate. Not only are we supposed to be telescopes, the other way to talk about it is like is we're supposed to be to meet mirrors. We're supposed to be like moons. We're supposed to reflect who God is to those around us. Now, Now, the moment that you say that, you begin to say, how well has humanity done at reflecting the character and attributes of God? Not very well. That's why Romans 3.23 says, for all have sinned and fall short of the what? Glory of God. Do you now understand what that verse means? Our rebellion against God, humanity's disobedience, which started with Adam and Eve, the first man and woman made in his image. When they failed to reflect who God was by being obedient to his word, they fell short of his, what? Glory. They fell short of putting on display how great God was through his character and his attributes in their lives. And so all of us can say, yeah, if you're setting the standard for what, for what I'm supposed to be as, as far as reflecting who God is, then yes, I fall short. I don't measure up. Now, the real stinky thing about that is that not only for all have sinned, fall short of the glory of God, for the wages of sin is death as well. And so that's why our mission statement says that we exist to glorify God by being and making disciples of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. It's, it's why then Jesus Christ came into the world. See, you and I need Jesus Christ. If we're going to be restored back to, as image bearers of God, we are saved by Jesus Christ to live for God's glory. The reason that he came into the world, as you saw reemphasized once again in our scripture this, this morning, is that he died for all that those who will live would no longer live for themselves. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Jesus Christ comes in to save you, not just to simply forgive your sins and adopt you and, and to give you eternal life. All of those things that happen and are part of it, but He saves us. I mean, this is core to our faith. This is core to what we're about as a church, is to restore you as someone who's able to bear God's image in the world. It's so that you no longer live for yourself, but for Him. I guarantee that even as a Christian, the number one problem in your life, the number one conflicts that exist in your life, the, the failures and things that you experience in your life, are because you're not walking in the new life that God has given you in some way, shape, perform every time you sin it's because it's about you and not about him and yet because we're new creations in Jesus Christ we now have the ability by the spirit that it dwells us to live this new life Jesus Christ died so that you and I can fulfill the purpose for which we were created to amen to that I mean, think about how awesome this is, how freeing this is, what good news this is. I have purpose and meaning in this life. My sin messed it up so I can't live that way. But praise God, Jesus came so that I can. And, and, and so, so what we said last week, and I just have to sit on this for, for a minute one more time, is that in and through Jesus Christ, no matter what season or station of life you're in, you can fulfill the purpose for which you were created. Praise God. You can be single, you can be married, you can be young, you can be old. If Christ is in you, you are no longer what you once were. You have been restored and are able to live out his righteousness. It's not just that he gives you his righteousness. It's not that you stand holy before the Father. But now today, in your marriages, in your family, you don't have to go to the ends of the earth, although God might call you. You don't have to to build a homeless shelter, although that's a great thing. You don't have to feed the poor, although they they need that. You, You... you can, in every area of your life, reflect to the world and live to God's glory by making much of him where he has you. That's why Paul would say that whether you eat or whether you drink, in all that you do, do all to the what? Glory of God. He's not saying that you can, can be gluttonous to the glory of God or get drunk to the glory of God. He's saying No. He's saying that as you go about your life, every area is a place where God can be glorified in you. I mean, this is is such a freedom. I mean, this is something that you need to take in, that I need to take in and look at my job and look at my family and say, oh, I get it. I get it that when I demonstrate love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control, I'm bringing glory to God. I'm making much of him. And he gets all the praise because the only reason I can do that is because of the strength that he gives me. Church, we take very seriously Paul's words where he says, you were bought with a price, therefore glorify God with your body. You've been bought with a price. And so this is what we're about. As, as a church, this is, what we, this is what we say. This is our mission. This is what we come back to. And so as we look to live this out, we come now to a very, very practical question. Like, what does this look like? What is the being and making of disciples? How, how do I walk in this? Do I need help to, to live to his glory, to manifest his character and his nature? Well, here's what we believe. And this is what this week and the next three weeks after that, what we're gonna look at is we believe that God's word says to you and to me, there, there are four things Four things that if I'm going to live as a disciple of, of Jesus, that you and I engage in. Four things that we say are, are necessary to living out this new life. Four things that God says I've placed in your life and before you so that you might live to my glory. For, for us, in many ways, these are the guideposts. The, these are the things that, that when we come back to time and time again, when somebody says, Dave, what does it look like to be a disciple of Jesus? To live out this new life that I have, I say, I say, well, I, I think you start here. And the very first place that I want us to start, and it's actually the last point in your notes. I was going to save it to the end, but I'm going to start here. And then we're going to explore it and pull it out together is, is this, that we believe that being and making disciples, it means that we gather for corporate worship that one of the things that God has instituted for us as we look to be and make disciples is that we are people who gather for corporate worship, that this is a necessary part of our living out our mission. And and now let me tease this out just for a second here. When I say corporate worship, it doesn't mean that we're a business that gathers together to worship, all right? (laughs) We're not talking about corporation worship. That's not what we're talking about. When I talk about corporate worship, this is the formal coming together like we're doing right now of the people of God For the worship of him, through the preaching of the word, through the singing of songs, through the experience of communion, through prayers together. We believe that this is something that God's word teaches. It's not to say that fellowship with other believers in a small group or in a Bible study or just getting together with another Christian, that those things aren't important. They are. But when you look through the word of God, as we're going to do right now, we're going to see that this must be captured in our hearts and minds. That if we're going to, to live out this mission, this is one of the places that it starts. And you so, say, Dave, why do we believe this? this is so important? And I say, well, I thought you'd never ask. Turn with me to the book of Acts. That's where we're going to begin this morning. In Acts chapter 2. The reason why we're looking at the book of Acts is this is a great place to turn and when we want to understand what does it look like to be and make disciples because... It is the historical account of the first disciples of Jesus Christ, the first followers of Jesus who actually heard the words of Jesus from his lips. And then this book shows us how they put those things into action. Now, I will say this. The book of Acts is a historical account. So in many ways, it is descriptive of the Christian faith and not prescriptive. What do I mean by that? I mean, because it's a historical account, as you read it, the author of Acts is none other than, guess who? Luke, who wrote the Gospel of Luke. And so Luke is telling us his historical account of what those first followers of Jesus Christ did and how, and how they lived out their faith. And the reason why I say it's descriptive is because he's describing those things and, and it's not always prescriptive. Just because we see the apostles doing something or something happening to those first disciples in the book of Acts doesn't always mean that, that that's gonna be normative or part of what we do as a church, except when, dun-dun-dun, The rest of the New Testament affirms what they do in the book of Acts. All right? And so so this is one of those passages, Acts chapter 2, starting in verse 42, where we see the first disciples of Jesus doing something. After Jesus goes back up into heaven, they immediately obey the words of Jesus in going and making disciples by proclaiming the gospel in Jerusalem. And verse 41 says, So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. I mean... They had like an Insta mega church. You know, part of the reason why we're even doing this series talking about our our mission as a church is because we realize, I shared this with you last week, like three years ago, we had about 320 people coming here on a Sunday. Last Sunday, we had over 500 people on campus. And so we're trying to make sure, are we all on the same, are we all on the same level? I'm grateful that God has grown our church very, very slowly. 3,000 people in one day would be a bit much, right? I mean, we'd celebrate it, don't get me wrong, but look at what then happens, Let's read on. Verse 42. These people get saved. And what did they do? And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and held all things in common. They were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes. They received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the peoples. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being, what? Saved. We look at this passage and we see the first followers of Jesus Christ doing some very interesting things. There are some distinctive ways in which they're looking to live out their, their faith. And one of the things that we first see that these first disciples engaged in was that the first disciples of Jesus modeled and taught the importance of setting aside time to gather with other believers to worship God. This is what we see taking place here in Acts chapter 2. The first disciples of Jesus, they both modeled and taught the importance of setting aside time together with other believers to worship God. In verse 42, something very interesting happens. There's this definite article that is used over and over again. It says, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teachings. And the fellowship. They didn't say, it doesn't say that they devoted themselves to what? Fellowship. It says they devoted themselves to what? The fellowship. Literally, the coming together. And it says and to the breaking of bread. That's not just talking about having a meal together as is described later in the text. That's, what is the breaking of bread? That's that's shorthand for saying for for communion, for participating in the Lord's Supper together. These believers came together and the disciples affirmed in their teaching that it was right and good for them to come together. And it says in verse 46 that they attended the temple day by day. Like you cannot read these verses or even the rest of the book of Acts without seeing the necessity that the first believers of Jesus Christ had, or I should say felt, and needing to gather with others to worship God. And it all begs the question, why? Like, why did they, why did they do this? Why did they teach this? Why did they feel like they needed to come together as God's people in, in, such, a, in such a formal way? way? Because the rest of the New Testament, it, it shows this. Well, I think it's important for us to answer that question, because if you remember, Jesus told his first disciples, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations." baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And so he tells them, so as you, as you go, make disciples. And so they, they go, they proclaim the gospel, then right after they, they make disciples, they get back together <laughs> and they begin to gather. And it makes sense, church, why they do that. You know why? Who were the first people to put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ? Who were the first people to hear the gospel and believe the gospel? They were the Jews, the Jewish people, And and what the Jewish people understood who put their faith and trust in God, that that as the people of God all throughout the Old Testament, it was clear to them that if you were a Jew living in Jesus' day, one of the commands of God was to meet together. And so you have Exodus 20, verse 8. It says, remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Six days shall you labor and do all your work, but on the seventh day is the Sabbath to the Lord your who? God. And, and, and then you, you go on and you have things like Deuteronomy 5:12 through 15, where it's reinforced again. Observe the Sabbath day, keep it holy as the Lord your God commanded you. Six days shall you labor and do all your work, but on the seventh is the Sabbath unto the Lord. Verse 15, you shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt and the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath Day. Now some people might say, well, he, when he gave them this commandment, he was talking about having just a, a day of rest, but it wasn't just a day of rest. It was a day when the people of God, the Israelite people, would come together for the worship of God and remembering what He had done in His hand of power, delivering them up out of Egypt. For those first Jews who heard the gospel, they knew that part of the cycle of their life, something that God commanded of them, was to set aside time to worship God. And if you were a Jew, you understood clearly that you were part of God's people and that your your relationship with God was not individualistic, but that it was something that when God called you to worship, that you came together with others. And so what did the first followers of Jesus do? They gather together. They gather together. In fact, they don't just simply gather together, they start teaching that they are called to gather together. And so one of the most clear passages in all of the New Testament that speaks to this is Hebrews chapter 10, verses 23 and 25. Let me show this to you. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope that we profess. You know, another way of thinking about this is let's hold unswervingly to the gospel to our purpose, to the mission that God has for us, what Christ has done for us. For he who promised is faithful. Now, how do we do that? How do we, how do we hold unswervingly to this? He says, let us consider how we may spur one another on to, to love and good deeds. We, we need each other to, to spur one another on, but how do we do that? Let us not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but let us encourage one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. Somewhere along the lines between Acts 2 and when Hebrews was written, as the church grows and as the church meets throughout the world, some people got it in their minds that there was not the necessity for the people of God to gather together, to spur one another on to love and good deeds. And so he says they forsook meeting together. And he says, the author of Hebrews, may it not be. By the way, that, that led us you know, not give up meeting together as is a habit of sin. That's not like a, you know what, let's not do what they're doing. Let's do something else. No, it's actually a command. It's, it's a clear command. It's like, no, they're doing this. We must do this. It's what God's people are called to do, to gather together. And what's so striking to me is that when you put these passages all together, we see that gathering for the worship of God is a command of God. Why did those first believers come together? It's because the gathering to worship God, it's it's a command of God. It it was something that he commanded the people in the Old Testament. He said, the Israelite people, you need to come together, set aside time to worship me with others. The New Testament authors say you got to do the same. Colossians chapter 3 verse 16, Paul writes, he says, says, "Let let us... sing and speak to one another and in hymns and songs and spiritual songs. And he's writing here in the, in the context of, of corporate worship. He's writing to the church in Colossae. And he's saying church in Colossae. Like you would say Valley Center Community Church. You need to gather together. You need to sing songs of praise. The word of Christ needs to dwell in you, you richly. And that, that can't happen when you're apart from one another. And so there's this command of God to gather together. And one of the things that I love about in Acts is that those first believers, they, they knew what God commanded in the Old Testament. And rather than saying, you know what? Jesus Christ, he loves us. He has saved us, you know. Um, his grace is poured out into our lives. Instead of them saying, you know, those commands of the Old Testament, that, well, that's, that's an old thing. We don't need to gather together anymore. Instead, in the Old Testament, we see that they were supposed to come together once a week. Yet in the book of Acts, did you see how often were they gathering together in the temple as the people of God. Literally what? Every day. You know, something that's striking to me is uh, I've had conversations with, with individuals who have served as pastors in, in closed countries like China. I remember a conversation with one individual who was part of planning a church in China, and he said, you know, it's just, it's funny to us in China, when we come here to America and we see you guys getting together just once a week on Sunday mornings and just for like an hour and a half, and if you go over an hour and a half, people get upset, he says, because because in China, he says, we so desperately need the witness of the saints that that if at all possible we, we will try and gather as a church almost daily. And we'll rotate between houses in order to, to do it. And he says, and when we have our quote-unquote Sundays and, and, we can, and we can, you know, avoid detection, he says, our, our worship services will go four, six hours because we'll be together. Um, somewhere there's become a disconnect often with us in this idea of, of gathering together. I wrote this week as I was thinking about these things that when the grace of God is poured into your life, you should not look at what God has commanded previously and say, hmm, what's the minimum I can do to get by? Instead, it should be, I want to hold nothing back from the Lord. If this amount of grace has come to me, if this new life has come to me, if God's Old Testament commandments and the things that he's pointing us to were ultimately for our good, I don't want to look and say, what's the minimum? I want to say, say it's all yours. In fact, that leads to the very next thing. Why do we gather like this? Why would God command this? Well, I want to say very simply that I think one of the reasons that this is most abundantly clear is, is this. Gathering for the worship of God keeps before us that we were created and saved for God's glory. Why does God come and, and call us as his people to, to gather in, in this way? It's for this very simple re- reason. Gathering for the worship of God keeps before us that we were created for his glory. I mean, think about what happens when we are gathering. See, God knows the default of the human heart. The human heart, because of sin in our lives and in the world, do you know what the default is? Is the default of the human heart to make much of God? Is, Is that what we want? No. The default of our human heart is to make much of ourselves. To prioritize numero uno right here. In fact, years ago, I saw uh, a pastor was talking about, about this and he was giving an illustration and at the time he played the violin, which I do not, nor do I really play the guitar. But he, he took st- any stringed instrument will work for this illustration, so I'm using Jason's guitar. Uh, you know, a stringed instrument like a guitar, it's, it's tuned uh, to make a beautiful noise when you, when you strum it. But something happens to a guitar when it just sits there over time. Do you know what happens to a guitar or a violin or really any stringed instrument, even your piano? Over time, it goes what? Out of tune. The strings begin to weaken, and so if you've ever picked up a guitar that's out of tune and you strum it, you just immediately think something's wrong. And then so so. So what does the musician do? They come and they take the time. And they say, I need to tune the guitar. I need to, I need to make it right. I need to, to get it back in, in harmony with what it was designed to do. What Jesus Christ has done for us is he's taken the, the guitar strings of our lives, which are drastically out of tune. Heck, I would even say they're not even on the guitar. And, 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 he, and, he's, and he's restrung us and and he's and he's tuned us and and he's given us the ability as i said to to live out his character and his nature but but the reality is is that because of our day-to-day lives because there's this temptation within within the world to live not for ourselves but but for or to live for ourselves and not for his glory, if, if we are not continually confronted with, even as followers of Jesus Christ, what we were made for over time, we get out of tune. And so when we gather together as the people of God, what we're doing is we're tuning our hearts to sing his praise. You know, there's that one hymn that says, come thou fount of every blessing. Well, the one line says, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the, the God I love. If you don't believe that the temptation still exists to to pull you away for the thing that you were created for, then then you have failed to understand the the depths of even your own sin. But in and through Jesus Christ, we have this means of gathering together with the saints. As we saw there in that passage in Colossians chapter 3, it says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. How? How? Teaching and admonishing one another with songs and hymns and spiritual songs. Making melody in your heart to God. Like, I need you and you need me. And God created this to tune our hearts to sing his praise because we drift from it. And so the corporate gathering, the coming together in a formal way. And listen, you and I can have sweet fellowship with one another. And we can gather in Bible studies, and we have cups of coffee together, but there is something unique and distinct about this gathering. Because this is the people of God coming together. And the reason why we do it in a formal way is this, every single one of us prioritizes what we value. Think about your life. Think about if you're a salesperson. The relationships that you value, you take time and you organize your schedule so that you can be there for that sales call because you wanna get that sale. Because you love your children and you're invested in their sports or in their performances, when you put them in an activity, what do you do? You organize your schedule. You say no to certain things because you believe that you need to be there for their game or be there for their performance. We prioritize what we value. Is there anything in the world greater and worthy of more praise, worthy to be more prioritized than the God who made us? That was not a rhetorical question. (laughs) Is there anything that is worthy of more priority and more value than God? The answer is No. no. And so when you and I set aside time as the people of God to come to worship Him, what you're saying is... He is worthy of all my praise. And I am going to say no to things at this time because I am proclaiming to my heart, I'm proclaiming to my church family that he is of utmost Amen. in my life. And, and, and failure to do that over time, it, I don't, you become untuned. I've been in ministry 21 years. I kinda of say that with a sigh sometimes. Sometimes I've been like, I've been in ministry twenty one years, and some of them are like I've been in ministry twenty one years. And I and I think of after all that time, I've seen the patterns in people's lives. I've been around some of you from the time that you were my age to the time now that you're grandparents. I've been around some of you from the time that, that you were five years old and now you're twenty six. We could just go down you get the point, right? What I've seen is people's life cycles. And that's one of the fortunate things about being in one church and one community for a period of time. And almost without fail, here's my pastoral encouragement to you. I guess it could be considered that. Without fail, over time, those who have not prioritized what God says you should slowly fall away from Him. And anybody that says, not me, I'll see you in five years. (laughs) It's without fail. Because we were made to make much of him. And if on a very base level, we fail to come together to do that, if that's not a priority in my life, I'm failing to proclaim to my heart what I believe to be true. Now, I want to tell you something that just really blessed me, and I think blessed the other elders, is at the start of this year, we we put out a survey to the members of our church. And thank you to the 56% that filled out the survey. I still had to buy lunch for the rest of the staff. All right, we didn't quite get there, but we had 56% of our members filled out the survey. And something that really blessed me was at least for those 56, I don't know about the rest of you 44%, but I know for those 56, that when that survey came back, one of the questions was this. Well, here, I'll show you the question. This is what it looks like. How many times a month do you gather with the church body for worship on Sunday mornings? Look at that number, 73% said, I look to gather four times or more. I'm like, four times or more? Well, that's because sometimes we have five Sundays <laughs> in a month. Um, the next thing was that 18% said, hey, listen, no, I, you know, at least, at least three times I'm, I'm trying to, to be there. The vast majority of the members that filled out that survey, this is what so blessed me. And blessed the elders was to say they got the idea of how important corporate worship is. Now, the other 44% of you, I don't know. You didn't fill out the survey. So I can't say, but this is what I can say. And it blessed me. And then this this blessed me more. Show the next slide. This was something else that we saw in the survey. When you're not able to attend, what's the primary reason? Oh, I cut off the the things. The 48% is because of sickness. The 25% was because they were on vacation. That shows me, at least for those who filled out the survey, that there was a deep commitment to corporate worship And an understanding that the only reason I'm going to miss not being here is because I'm somewhere else or I just can't make it. My prayer is that this would be true of our church, not just today, but always. And that this would be true of the entirety of our church because it's what God has for us. It's what is so necessary for us. But there's one final reason why. One final reason why I believe God calls us to this, why it's so necessary to gather for corporate worship, and that's this: gathering for the worship of God not only keeps before us that we what we were created for, but but it also is this: gathering for the worship of God keeps before us that we are part of a community, that we're part of a community. When you were saved by Jesus Christ, you were not saved into an individualistic, siloed relationship with the God of the universe. You do get to experience that. He becomes your father, but look at all your brothers and sisters. You're brought into the family of God. In fact, for those early followers of Jesus Christ, for those Jews, if, if you had gone to one of the first disciples and said to them, hey, listen, uh, I believe in Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior, but, but you know, really it's just about, it's about me and God. That's all that I really need. They would have thought that you were joking. They would, they would have thought, well, what are, you, what are you talking about? Because there's this clear teaching within inside of the word of God that we were made and created to experience this life in community and that you and I were brought into God's family and that we need one another. At, did you notice if you go to Romans chapter 12 and you look at verses 3 through 8, if you go to First Corinthians chapter 12, you and I are gifted for one another, and guess what? Those gifts that God has given us, they can only be experienced in community. And so I need you, and you need me. I can't live to God's glory. I can't fulfill Colossians 3.16 by singing psalms in my car by myself, can I? If God's word says that we're to gather to sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs to admonish one another, how can you and I fulfill and be obedient to the word of God if I'm, if I'm not coming together with other believers? And so you were made to experience the goodness of God in community. In fact, Peter wrote, and I'm just going to go back to this verse because I love it so much. First Peter chapter 2. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. We were created by God to experience and to live out his glory in community. One of the beautiful things that I love about this so much is that means that you and I, we're, we're not in the world on our own. What part of the, the gathering that happens here is so that you can come to a place, come together and say, I'm not isolated out there. I might feel in my job. I might even feel in my family. I might feel in my community that no one else, no one else is living for the glory of God or, or cares for him. Yesterday, I went to the funeral service of a dear brother in the Lord, Willie Moore. It was in this church for, for 20 years before they moved away, and, and he was 66. Um, he went from being a healthy 66-year-old man to, to dying in literally a, a three-month period. And, and when I was visiting with one of the individuals that was there at the sermon, I said, you know, In ministry, there are some people that that you just kind of look at and and you just say, I know and I believe all of this is true because of the testimony of their lives, the way that they use their gifts inside the church. Willie Moore was one of those people. As long as I knew Willie, as long as he was a part of this church family, I, I could always look at Willie and I knew that he wasn't perfect, but I saw him living out Christ daily. and I wouldn't have experienced that if we hadn't engaged in community together. But I was able to see it. This is what God has made us for One of the things that I said to myself this week is when I think about Sunday mornings, we gather and then we scatter. And then we gather and then we scatter. (laughs) And this this is all for the purpose of this gathering is that when we scatter, we're going and we're looking to make disciples. But Lord, help us be a church that understands that if we are to live out what God has called us to be, what we're doing here, what we're engaged in is such a necessary part of our Christian walk. And so, may the Lord help us tune our hearts when we gather in this place to sing his praise. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we're here. We're together. And Lord, I know that sometimes uh, coming to this place, we can think, "Well, what, what's, what's the purpose of all of this? Lord, I hope that today, as we came to your word, we begin to see it a little bit more clearly. That in setting aside this time, we're proclaiming to our hearts, to the world, the necessity. The necessity of making much of you. And that this is what our lives are about. That we're going to say no to certain things because, because they're not any more important than, than you are. That Lord, unless sickness or the unexpected hits, we're going to say, say nothing's going to get between me and gathering with my brothers and sisters because, Lord, I want to be tuned to sing your praise. And so, Lord, we ask that as your people, we would daily embrace this. And that when we see what you call us to, we wouldn't see your commands and your callings as a burden, but we would say, your grace has been so poured out on us. Lord, I want to do above and beyond whatever you would ask, because you are worthy of it. And so we pray and we ask in Christ's name and all God's people said, amen.